You're listening to a Count Out Podcast. In 1991, the first ever G1 Climax was born. Replacing the former World Leagues and IWGP League tournaments, this new tournament took the top heavyweights New Japan Pro Wrestling had to offer to see who truly was the best in the promotion. But not everyone got the opportunity to compete in the G1 Climax. After all, the G1 Climax was for the best of the best, and to be invited in was an honor in of itself. Some wrestlers never appeared, while some competed year in and year out. Today, however, we will be discussing the men that got the call only one time. This is G1 and Only. Welcome to G1 and Only. My name is Ryan Knightsey. The second G1 Climax is an interesting tournament for many reasons. Firstly, it is a 16-man, single-elimination style tournament. It wouldn't be the last time the G1 goes away from its now well-known round-robin format, but this is obviously the first. The second reason this G1 Climax is different is because this tournament was for the vacant NWA World's Heavyweight Championship. WCW and New Japan Pro Wrestling had a working relationship at the time, and with the NWA title sort of on the back burner for a bit after Ric Flair vacated the title a year prior, both companies felt that this was a great way to come out strong and create a new champion. Lastly, and most prevalent to today's episode, is that for half of the wrestlers in this tournament, this will be their one and only G1 Climax appearance. That list of wrestlers are former horsemen Barry Windham and Arn Anderson, New Japan Pro Wrestling regular Tony Halm, Jim Neidhart, The Barbarian, Steve Austin, Terry Taylor, and Rick Rude. Each of these eight men had varying degrees of success in this tournament, and today we will discuss and grade every wrestler's performance in their one and only G1 Climax. entered this G1 Climax as a singles wrestler from WCW. The four horsemen dissolved when Flair left for WWF, and Wyndham was being positioned as the next top guy. 
After a feud with other Four Horsemen member Lex Luger, Wyndham shifted to tag team action with Dustin Rhodes in a feud with stunning Steve Austin over the WCW World Television Championship. Wyndham always circled the drain of the NWA World Heavyweight Championship, but was never able to win the big one. Let's see if Barry Wyndham's one and only G1 Climax performance will finally spell success. Unlike last episode, where I talked in depth about each man's action because of these, you know, amount of matches I need to cover in this episode, I'm going to try and limit the amount of play-by-play calling. You can tweet at CountOutPod if you prefer the play-by-play coverage more, or just sort of this more of uh, uh, shortened version of it, I guess I should say. After four lockups and light back-and-forth action, Muto gains the overall advantage on Wyndham. Muto hits a running elbow drop on Barry and reapplies a headlock. Barry attempts to get out some kidney shots in a back body drop, but Muto hangs on and rolls into a headlock. Wyndham finally escapes with a high back body drop and retreats to the corner. He collects himself and hits Muto with a clothesline and a failed pin attempt. Barry continues his strikes in a vertical suplex for another failed pin attempt. After a failed running handspring back elbow from Muto, the two trade chops back and forth until Wyndham eventually rakes Muto's eyes and hits him with a DDT. Barry picks up Muto and puts him on the top turnbuckle, looking for a possible suplex here. Muto, however, reverses by headbutting Wyndham off and goes for a diving crossbody off the top rope, but like the handspring back elbow, Wyndham had it scouted and dodges out of the way. Wyndham flexes to the crowd, which buys Muto enough of a breather to get a small package on Barry, but this fails. Wyndham immediately follows it up with a heavy strike, slam, and sadly a missed middle rope elbow drop. Muto Irish whips Wyndham and back body drops him once more. He then throws Wyndham into the corner and attempts the handspring back elbow again, but this time he connects. Realizing it connected, Muto quickly jumps to the top rope and the crowd erupts. One Muto assault later and bing bang boom, Keji Muto wins round one. Conclusion. Barry Wyndham here just looks so out of place. You know, at the time, Wyndham was a former four horseman, a a burgeoning top babyface for WCW. But in my opinion, he kind of looked like nothing here. He kind of just looked like any sort of dude. It appeared that the Japanese crowd had no idea who Wyndham was, and it made an already tough match harder to watch. Speaking of tough matches, this match really showed the lack of chemistry these two had together. To be fair, this was Barry's first and only singles match in New Japan Pro Wrestling history, and his only singles match against Muto. However, they just couldn't find anything special here, whether it's the crowd not really maybe caring for Barry Windham, or Windham himself not really caring about the match. Either way, this stunk. Following this G1 Climax appearance, in 1993, Barry Windham will actually take on the Great Muta for the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship, and win the belt there. It only took a a full six months to turn these things around. Barry Windham's G1 and only grade, D. Next up on G1 and only is Tony Holm. Holm was a Finnish wrestler trained by Vern Gagne. 
He was a regular in New Japan Pro Wrestling and is the only non-WCW wrestler on today's episode. He was originally given a boxing gimmick, going back to his roots, but this gimmick only lasted a year. Hom continued with New Japan Pro Wrestling just as a straight wrestler and today finds himself in the 1992 G1 Climax. Let's see how he does against last year's winner, Masahiro Chono. Hom and Chono began this match with a basic lockup, but Hom immediately broke it up with a gut punch, uppercut, and blow to the head of Chono. Chono fell hard to the match as Tiger Hattori scold Hom for the closed fist punch. Chono rises at the count of eight, very slow, getting up even after the count is over. Hom continues the confident domination with various gut punches, splashes, taunts to the crowd. At one point, Hom grabs Chono by the neck, raises him up into the air, and then slams him back down. A very impressive spot to show off Hom's power. This feels almost like, to me, I'm watching a Brock Lenzer match. Just domination within MMA style, bringing in the heat from the crowd. Halm picks up Chono and Irish whips him into the ropes. Chono dodges a shoulder block, but misses the second on his rebound. Halm talks to the crowd, making fun of Chono's pain. Halm then grabs Chono and lifts him into a stalled vertical suplex for seven seconds. He then follows his move into a Samoan drop and goes for a pin, but doesn't get it. A pissed-off Halm yells at Ref Tiger Hattori to count faster. Halm then throws Chono into the ropes, where Chono just collapses. No rebound, he just sort of falls apart and rolls to the outside. After taking a 15-second breather, Chono returns to the ring, and Halm continues his punishment. Halm throws Chono into the corner and goes for another running splash, but Chono dodges out of the way for his first chance of a comeback. Chono back body drops Hom, followed by three kicks to the head of Tony Hom. Hom but then gets back up and goes for a wild desperation clothesline, but Chono dodges, causing Hom to fall to the outside. Chono then baseball slides Hom into the barricade, but Hom comes back and sucker punches Chono in the gut three times. Hom sets Chono into the ring post and goes for another wild clothesline, but Chono dodges yet again, causing Hom to whip his arm into the ring post. He doesn't re-enter the ring until the 13 count. Chono takes advantage of Halm's hurt arm and immediately starts kicking it, followed by a standing armbar of sorts. Chono then pulls Halm into his signature STF submission, and Halm struggles to escape until he finally gets to the ropes. Halm gets back up and starts punching Chono with his one good arm, but Chono falls back with three kicks to Halm's bad arm. Then he recaptures Halm into the STF. Halm is really trying to stay in, but it's very tough for him. He's trying to reach those ropes, but it's at this point where Chono reminds himself of Halm's injured arm and transitions out of the STF into an armbar. Halm, in sheer pain from this arm, has no choice but to tap out. Conclusion. Before I discuss my thoughts on Tony Holmes' G1 Climax, I just want to say that my thoughts on this match are based on how he appeared in this match with Chono. 
like everyone else on this list, I don't really discuss and go into their personal lives, just their wrestling career. You know, sort of we're separating the art from the artist, I guess, if you will. I know that Tony Hom is sort of a very controversial figure behind the scenes and also post-wrestling. Uh, and there's a great show called Pro Wrestling Stories where you can learn more. They did a really great episode just about Tony Hom and about all of his craziness behind the scenes. So I definitely recommend go checking that out. Back to the review of this match. I mentioned it before, but this story really reminds me of a Brock Lenzer match. You've got the guy in Tony Hom, big, beefy dude, MMA background, buzz cut hair, just pummeling fan favorite Masahiro Chono. Chono works as the easy face in this way, just keep getting beaten down until he can dodge out of the way and turn the match around. That one dodge from the ring post lariat saved Chono and was the beginning of the end for Tony Hom here. It was also interesting to see Hom work an arm body part match. Typically, when big guys are in body part matches, it's usually their leg that's worked on because, hey, you know, this is a big guy that I need to knock down. Instead, Chono created an opening by attacking Hom's arm, and it was sold masterfully by Tony Hom. He really made me feel like his arm was legit hurt. Once it was hurt, you know, he avoided using the arm for his strikes and just couldn't utilize his power moveset going forward. Tony Hom put on a great performance here and really made his one-match moment shine. Following this G1 climax, Tony Hom sort of floated around a bit in New Japan until entering the Super Grade Tag League 2 with, hey, you guessed it, Masahiro Chono. Hom traded partners following the Tag League for Scott Norton, and the two won the IWGP Tag Team titles. But this ended poorly due to a legit backstage altercation between the two a couple months later, where Hom then left New Japan altogether, making this his only G1 Climax appearance. Tony Hom's G1 and only grade, C. Next, we have Jim Neidhart and the Barbarian. The reason they are lumped together here is simply because the latter half of the first round of the 1992 G1 Climax, apparently, didn't make tape. After some digging, I discovered that there may be a DVD out there that has these matches on fan cam footage, but I can't confirm that. One website says that yes, it is fan cam footage. The other website says that the results are just shown and not the matches themselves. I don't know why New Japan wouldn't tape their matches uh, or maybe even release their matches, but maybe that's just me thinking with a content-oriented brain, as you know we all do in 2020, I guess, at this point. I'm sure they tried to, maybe they even did, but just never sort of released it. So who's to say, I did purchase the DVD, so hopefully it arrives in time for this episode's release and has the actual match footage. You know, I guess we'll wait and see. If you're hearing this, I maybe know the answer, but uh, either way, we'll wait and see. Until then, Jim Neidhart and the Barbarians G1 and only grade, ungraded. Continuing the double entry idea, next up is Arn Anderson and stunning Steve Austin. The reason these two are paired up here is, well, because they were paired up for this tournament. Both men's first round match was against each other. So before we find out how they did, let's get some backstory before the match. Arn Anderson was, like Barry Windham, a former Four Horsemen 
Anderson formed a tag team of Larry Zabisco called the Enforcers, where they won the WCW World Tag Team Championships, but quickly lost it to Steamboat and Dustin Rhodes. And then that group dissolved. Anderson then formed a team with Bobby Eaton and joined a faction managed by Paul E. Dangerously called the Dangerous Alliance. One member of that faction was Stunning Steve Austin. Austin was a two-time WCW World Television Champion and even entered this tournament champion after defeating Barry Windham for the title in May 1992. Austin was still a mid-carder at this time, so him winning the tournament and becoming a double champion would surely make him a star. Anderson and Austin never faced each other once before this match, but now these two members of the Dangerous Alliance were set to fight in Japan in the G1 Climax. The two lock up and trade back and forth some mat wrestling, neither sort of gaining the advantage. Arn moves Austin into the ropes to get a break, but Arn doesn't give Austin that sort of clean break. Arn Anderson runs off the ropes, attempting a shoulder block, but Austin beats him to it, following it up with an elbow drop. Arn rolls out of the ring, and when Austin tries to grab Arn and bring him back inside, Arn strikes Austin twice in the head. Arn jumps the apron and shoulder blocks Austin, but Austin follows up with a knee to Arn's head and several stomps to Arn's stomach. Austin then picks up Arn and Anderson and attempts to hit his face into the ring post, but Anderson counters and bangs Austin's head instead into the corner, followed by choking Austin's head with the ring ropes themselves. Remember, these guys are teammates in the same heel faction. Arn Anderson re-enters the ring, jumps to the mid-rope, and goes for a diving clothesline, but Austin reverses this with a lariat of his own. Austin puts Arn back into a headlock as both men breathe and sweat hard. Austin's eyes, you can sort of see it, are darting around the crowd looking at the lack of response. Knowing his comments about crowd energy later in his life, I'm sure Austin hated the traditionally silent New Japan fandom. Anderson pushed Austin into the ropes, and Austin responds with a running shoulder block. A drop down, an elite frog later, Austin catches Arn and throws him down to the ring and attempts a Boston Crab. Looks like somebody has been studying his New Japan history. Arn escapes the hold and leaves the ring. Upon returning, Austin strikes Arn. Austin throws Arn into the opposite ring corner, then somersaults into a shoulder block. Sally for him, Arn had scouted and dodged the move. Now back in control, Arn Anderson attacks Austin's arm with a slam and an arm lock to the ground at Austin. Arn picks up Austin and uses the ropes to attack Austin's arm, then slaps another submission hold to Austin's arm, looking for that submission victory. Arn climbs the middle rope. He goes for some sort of move, but Austin puts his feet up, nailing Arn in the face, popping the crowd with a laugh. Stunning Steve Austin then picks up Arn Anderson and hits him with a spinning lariat. Austin goes for the pin, but it is not enough. Austin throws Arn into the ropes again, but Arn catches Austin and calls for a DDT, but Austin scouts it and reverses the move into an elbow drop. Austin then throws Arn into the ropes again, grabs him, flapjacks him, and hangs him on the ropes. One stun gun later, and Steve Austin wins the first round of the G1 Climax. Conclusion 
In a way, this match was sort of disappointing to watch. Even with me trying to remove my 2020 lenses here, this match still had not a lot going on with it. For example, there were many instances of wrestles throughout the match and lackadaisical moves. However, I did enjoy the interfaction heel work happening as part of the story of this match. The two shook hands at the start, continuing the respect they have for each other, but also were hard heads when it came to clean breaks, leaving the ring, attacking opponents when entering the ring, and so on. It wasn't chicken shit heel behavior, but rather two tough, mean sons of guns going at it to see who's better. Additionally, according to one blog I found online, it is believed that Austin and Anderson spent the previous night drinking in a town near the arena, which honestly sounds plausible due to who the rumor's about. If the night of drinking led to a worse match, who's to say? But for me, this was just a fine bout. It's also interesting to note that this match was the second of any G1 and only wrestler to win a match and the first to win by pinfall. Granted, he beat another G1 and only wrestler, but you know, you take the wins, Ryan, where you can. Steve Austin wins this match, moving along in the G1 Climax. So for now, let's say goodbye to Arn Anderson and his G1 Climax appearance. Following this match, Arn Anderson would continue to make tours and appearances in New Japan Pro Wrestling due to the partnership between New Japan Pro Wrestling and Arn's home promotion of WCW. Back in WCW, Arn would reunite with Ole Anderson and Ric Flair, now joined by Paul Roma, to relaunch the Four Horsemen. But this version quickly fell apart. Arn would later join the Stud Stable faction, helmed by Colonel Rob Parker, again teaming up with Steve Austin. Arn would win the TV title for a final time and restart the Four Horsemen again until retiring in 1997. After WCW was purchased by WWF, Arn became a road agent for many decades until he was eventually released in 2019. Then he joined All Elite Wrestling in the same year. Arn Anderson's G1 and only grade, C-. We move forward now with the winner of the last bout, stunning Steve Austin. In the second round of the 1992 G1 Climax, Steve Austin faced the man that defeated his WCW rival in Barry Windham in the first round, Keji Muto. As stunning Steve entered for his second round match, I think it's fair to say that, that as a guy who loved Big Van Vader's theme music, Austin's here is just as kick-ass. You really got to check it out. I try to look it up as his own individual track on YouTube, and I just couldn't find it. So you're going to have to find and seek out the match just to hear Steve Austin's New Japan theme. This match is Austin and Muto's first match ever against each other in singles competition. For me, this is such a great match to look back on. Here, these guys are being positioned as the stars of tomorrow for both WCW and New Japan Pro Wrestling. This is a platform for these two to showcase what's to come for the next generation. The two shake hands and we begin. The match opens with a lot of even back and forth mat wrestling action. This was similar to the Arn Anderson match opener, but it made sense there because the two men were in the same faction. 
Here, Austin and Muto are on the same playing field. Austin body shots Muto into the corner with his shoulder, fists, and elbows. Austin Irish whips Muto into the opposite corner, but Muto counters by bouncing off the middle rope and hitting a spinning back kick on Austin. Muto capitalizes with an elbow drop into a heel hook into a leg bar and looks for the submission victory. He doesn't get it, so Muto changes into the self-innovated Muto lock, but Austin was too close to the ropes and breaks the hold. Austin captures Muto's leg and trips him, transitioning into a headlock. But Muto transitions out of that into an arm lock immediately, then into the leg capture setup for the Muto lock. He bridges into it, but Austin reverses this bridge into a failed crucifix pin. Austin then sends Muto into the ropes, who then rolls under a lariat and bounces off the opposite ropes into a crossbody. Austin tries to catch Muto on that crossbody, but there is just too much momentum and the two fall over. Austin goes for the pin anyway, but doesn't get it. Austin picks up Muto for a suplex and another failed pin later back into a headlock. Muto stands up and escapes with some punches and another spinning back kick. He throws Austin off the ropes and goes for a drop kick, but Austin stops himself at the ropes. Austin goes for a chin lock, knee and back combo, and the now downed Muta, but Muto reaches the ropes again. Austin answers by Irish whipping Muto into the corner and going for that rolling shoulder block, but just like with Arn Anderson, Keji Muto had this scouted and got out of the way. Muto follows up with a back body drop and takes the time to catch his breath. He grabs Austin, throws him into the opposite corner, and goes for his own flashy move, the cartwheel back elbow. But here, Muto lands the move. Muto jumps to the top rope and goes for a Muto assault, but Austin dodges. But Muto does land on his feet and hits a dropkick on Austin, causing Austin to fall to the outside. Keji Muto hits a diving crossbody to Austin and then throws Austin into the barricade and goes for that cartwheel back elbow again. However, Austin dodges it this time, sending Muto over the rail and getting caught about to fall into the fans' laps. Austin grabs Muto and hits a suplex onto the padded floor. He then re-enters the ring, taunts with the crown for the victory, but then, in a weird way, decides to, you know, screw it. I want to beat this sucker up. Austin exits the ring and drops Muto onto the railing, then rolls back into the ring. Austin then kindly helps Muto enter the ring via a suplex. Austin goes for a single leg Boston Crab on Muto, dead center in the middle of the ring, really focusing on the knee, but Muto reaches the ropes. Austin continues to focus on the knees, but Muto escapes. Austin then maintains the advantage by rib cracking and getting a submission hold on Muto. You can just see the pain that is causing Muto and the crowd chants their support for Muto to help him get out of the match. Muto escapes in a weird way by bouncing off the ropes and spinning into a pin, but Austin kicks out of this unique pin attempt. Austin goes for the submission once more, but Muto escapes and hit a running bulldog Muto jumps over the ropes and goes for a springboard elbow drop, but misses. Austin goes for the pin. One, two, kick out at 2.5. The crowd is hot. Austin just sort of stomps down on Muto, frustrated. He slams Muto down and heads to the top rope. Austin attempts an admittedly ugly frog splash, but Muto dodges. 
Muto runs to the top rope, but slips and collapses to the outside. Austin brings Muto back in and attempts the shoulder submission, but Muto back body drops Austin instead. He then picks up Austin, does his own rib cracker, and heads to the top rope to hit the Muto Salt. Keji Muto nails it, and three seconds later, he wins round two of the G1 Climax. Conclusion If you're looking for the legendary Stone Cold vs. Great Muda match, then this, quite frankly, isn't it. This match was two very similar and equal mid-card wrestlers from different companies vying to see who is better. And on Japanese soil, Keji Muto wins. The pair faced off three more times across both New Japan and WCW, with their singles record ending in a 3-1 record, leaning towards Muto. Despite their partnership and defeating a champion, Muto never challenges Austin for the WCW TV Championship. Probably couldn't anyways, because Austin ends up losing the title one month later to Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This match between the two was very good for the time it was. You know, there was some mess-ups, but nothing awful. After this, the Dangerous Alliance disbanded, and Austin started a tag team with Fly and Brian called the Hollywood Blondes. They would be successful until Pillman is injured, causing Austin to become a single star once more and join Parker's stud stable. After a few WCW US title reigns, Austin is fired by Eric Bischoff and heads to Extreme Championship Wrestling and then WWF, where he became the Million Dollar Champion upon his debut. From there, Austin won a different tournament called the King of the Ring, Cuts a promo, bing, bang, boom, a superstar is born and upon this world. And Austin 316 started stomping mud holes around the globe. Steve Austin's G1 and only grade, C+. Now, let's take a quick break to talk about Terry Taylor. Before his one and only appearance in the G1 Climax, Taylor was sort of bouncing around the different territories for a number of years. He would work for NWA, UWF, WCCW, WWF, WCW, and back to WWF over the course of 11 years. The longest he was at a wrestling promotion before this G1 appearance was five years with the NWA. You know, the reason for these many changes is unclear to me, but I, I, I don't think being moved around all over the place doesn't look good. Maybe, you know, whether it's behind the scenes stuff, whether it's just loyalty, I don't know. But hey, them's the territory tease, baby. When Terry Taylor arrived in New Japan, he was working for WCW. There, he was a former WCW World Six-Man Tag Team Champion and a former United States Tag Team Champion with Greg Valentine. Now, he's entering the 1992 G1 Climax for the first time in a first-round match against Hiroshi Hase. If only that match actually happened. You see, Terry Taylor earned a bye in round one when his opponent Hiroshi Hase received a broken arm at the hands of Super Strong Machine two weeks earlier in a six-man tag match. This legit injury sidelined Hase for the tournament, meaning that without a match, Terry Taylor advanced to round two. In round two, Terry Taylor met and wrestled for the first time 
Kensuke Sasuke, the former tag team partner of Hiroshi Hase. I found a clip of the final three and a half minutes of the nine and a half minute match. Let's take a look. We open the match with Terry Taylor in control. He slams Sasuke down and hits a slow running elbow and gets a failed pin. After a headlock, Taylor moves Sasuke into the corner, strikes him, then moves him to the center of the ring. But Sasuke rolls him up into a small package, but doesn't get the win. Taylor quickly gets up and pops Sasuke in the jaw twice. The crowd starts to get louder, rooting for Sasuke to get out of this long heat segment. Taylor picks up Sasuke and slams her near the corner. He goes up to the middle rope, poses, then comes down for a splash hard on Sasuke's knees, missing. Sasuke picks up Taylor and slams him down, then follows up with a running elbow drop for a failed pin attempt. Both men get up and Sasuke hits a side suplex. Sasuke then gets to his feet first and throws Taylor into the ropes and drops down for a back body drop. But Taylor counters, grabbing Sasuke with a waist lock and performs a sit-out powerbomb for a two-count. The crowd is even hotter now. Sasuke gets up and Irish whips Taylor and performs a power slam. He taunts to get that extra finisher and power arm drags Taylor for the win. Conclusion From what I was able to watch, the crowd seem into this short match. But I personally didn't see much out of Terry Taylor. To be fair, I... You know, I entered late into the match during a heat segment, so I missed the build to the finish. But, you know, even at the finish, which should be the ultimate climax of a match, Taylor felt like he was sort of just walking through the match. He didn't impress me with the little that I did view of the match. A month after this match, Terry Taylor returned to WWE, where he wrestled for a bit until he transitioned into a broadcaster and a backstage interviewer. From there, Taylor would leave and return to WCW and WWF slash WWE five more times, where he started working more backstage and on commentary. Currently, Taylor is at WWE as a trainer in NXT, one half of Shawn Michaels and his in NXT's finishing class for advanced trainees. Terry Taylor's G1 and only grade, D. Finally, to wrap up on our tour through the 1992 G1 Climax, we end at the last of the eight wrestlers on our list, Rick Rude. Before his appearance in the G1 Climax, Rude was a popular mid-card act in WWF, but after a dispute with Vince McMahon, left to WCW and became the head of the Dangerous Alliance, where he became the WCW United States Champion, a title he held entering this tournament. Previously, I stated how the latter bracket of the first round did not seem to make tape, meaning this match was seemingly not filmed and released to the public. We do know, however, that Rude won his first round match against Super Strong Machine in 11 minutes and 54 seconds. Now we move into the second round with Rude facing Shinya Hashimoto. Like many other matches in this tournament, this was a first time ever match between Rude and Hashimoto. As Rude makes his entrance, we see Medusa by his side. 
The clip cuts to Hashimoto's entrance, but right before it cuts, we see Rude reaching for the microphone. I can only imagine to hear a Rick Rude cutting a promo in Japan. I, it had to have been lovely. When Hashimoto enters the ring, he points down Rude. Rude draws his fist ready for a fight, but Hashimoto scares him off with a high roundhouse kick. He doesn't hit him, he just wants to know that he isn't taking Rude lightly. As the bell rings, the match begins. The two men lock up, but Rude immediately breaks it up and begins striking Hashimoto. Rude sends Hashimoto into the ropes, but Hashimoto reverses with strikes of his own that send Rude to the outside. Rude re-enters the ring very slowly as Hashimoto looks to strike him, and Hashimoto immediately does. Kick after kick after kick, Hashimoto drops Rude into a rib cracker and stretches him out. Rude rakes Hashimoto's eyes to escape once again. Back on the offense, Rude knees Hashimoto into the stomach and goes to lift Hashimoto, but Rude's back gives out, giving Hashimoto a chance to bounce back with a huge lariat and a two count. Hashimoto continues to beat down Rude and attempts a running spinning back kick into the corner, but Rude dodges. Rude then jumps up to the middle rope and clotheslines the back of Hashimoto's head, then locks in that camel clutch in the dead center of the ring. It's here that the camera catches that Hashimoto's nose or possibly his mouth has begun to bleed. Hashimoto then tries to power his way out of Rude, but Rude sees this and drops himself on Hashimoto's back. Rude does his signature hip swivel to the crowd, and then his back gives out. Rude rushes to the top rope and hits a drop kick on Hashimoto and a close two count. He then strikes Hashimoto, but Hashimoto absorbs the blows and comes back with punches and kicks of his own, followed by a vertical suplex. Hashimoto does an armbar on Rude, but Rude is able to roll over into a leg lock of his own. Rude releases the hold, climbs to the top rope, but Hashimoto catches Rude and throws him down onto the mat. Hashimoto goes for the elbow drop, but Rude dodges. He takes advantage of this and hits a pile driver on Hashimoto for a two count, then goes straight into another camel clutch. Hashimoto is able to power out and land an electric chair on Rude. Both men make it to their feet and Hashimoto performs a belly-to-belly suplex on Rude for the two count. Hashimoto throws Rude into the ropes, but Rude counters into a sleeper, but Hashimoto drops down to escape. Hashimoto then delivers several kicks to Rude's midsection and slams him down, then nails a running spinning back kick for a close three, but no dice. Hashimoto tries for it again, but this time Medusa intervenes. Rude climbs the top rope and dives on Hashimoto, who dodges, but Rude reverses into a different move with the DDT. Rude then climbs back up to the middle rope, but Hashimoto again catches him and delivers a back suplex for a very close three count. Hashimoto pumps up the crowd and delivers a deep DDT, goes for the pin, but Rude gets his leg on the rope. Hashimoto climbs to the top rope, but Medusa climbed to the opposite side, distracting Hashimoto and the referee. Rude then takes advantage of this and catches Hashimoto with a DDT off the top rope, just brutal looking. Rude climbs to the top rope and lands a diving knee for the one, two, three. 
Rick Rude celebrates in the ring with Medusa, Hashimoto gets up stunned that he lost. While a badly beaten Rude is getting his hand raised, Hashimoto runs over and tries to continue the fight Rude, but is quickly separated by officials as Rude and Medusa escape. After the match, Hashimoto is seen backstage crying into his own hands over this loss. Conclusion This was a really good match. This might sound like a weird comparison, but it felt like a prime Dolph Ziggler versus a Samoa Joe. You know, the cheap, kind of sleazy heel with great mat skills and selling taking on a massive strike-heavy man. Medusa was also used masterfully as a manager in this match, causing only two distractions, one of which that led to the finish of the match. Personally, I enjoy managers that are in the background, but are extremely helpful with their clients. You know, she wasn't constantly involved in this match, and it, you know, Rick Rude was able to hold his own, and Medusa only got involved to distract Hashimoto at key moments which then helped highlight Rick Rude more as the star and not Medusa. The focus was on Rude here. A year and a half later, Rick Rude and Shinya Hashimoto would face once more at Hyper Battle in 1994, where Hashimoto earned his win back. With this victory, Rick Rude moved into the semifinals, the only American and G1 and only wrestler to do so. There, he met Kensuke Sasuke. This match was also difficult to find online. So if you're hearing this, my like I said before, DVD has also not come in the mail. So below, I will talk about the final five minutes of Rude and Sasuke 19-minute match. We start with Rude in a deep sleeper hold, wheeling his arms frantically to get out. He finds that out by dropping himself into a sort of stunner. Two men get up, trade blows back and forth, with Rude cutting off Sasuke's momentum with a eye rake. Rude then chokes Sasuke on the ropes, much to the chagrin of ref Tiger Hattori. Rude then follows up with some small hip thrusts towards Tiger. In what has become a very popular Twitter account, Rude runs off the ropes and Sasuke counters with an atomic drop on Rude. What more can I say about the cell? Head to at Rick Rude Sales on Twitter to see what we're dealing with here. Sasuke slams Rude's head to the ground, then literally throws Rude into the corner three times. Then Irish whips Rude into the opposite side, drop kicks him, then hits a running bulldog. Sasuke picks up Rude for a back suplex and pin, but Rude kicks out. Sasuke power slams Rude and gets a two and a half count. He then climbs to the top rope, looking for something to stop Rude, but Rude closes him off and delivers a superplex to Sasuke and gets the two count. Rude picks up Sasuke and slams it down, setting up for his top rope knee drop, straight to Sasuke's dome. He then climbs the top rope again and delivers that same knee drop once more, this time to the back of Sasuke's neck. A three count later, and Rick Rude is the first and only G1 and only wrestler to head to the finals. Conclusion. In these final five minutes, this match really impressed me. It's very apparent that both WCW and New Japan Pro Wrestling saw big things in Rick Rude. You know, he was a great wrestler and possibly one of the greatest heels of the 90s. And his act worked seemingly great in Japan. 
He knew how to work the foreign crowd and was incredibly smooth in the ring. Rude and Sasuke face each other three more times on WCW house shows and one time on WCW Saturday night, where Sasuke picked up the victory. Finally, we move into the final match of this very long episode of G1 and Only. Again, thank you all for staying with me here. If you like the show, please consider both subscribing and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. In Ryogoku, on August 12th, 1992, Rick Root enters the finals of the G1 Climax, the only non-Japanese wrestler to do so against last year's winner, Masahiro Chono, to crown a new NWA World's Heavyweight Champion. The two start out hot with slaps, back body drops, and lariats to each other with Chono coming out on top and posing with Rude's signature hip swivel. Rick Rude breaks a test of strength with some cheap shots and continues on Chono, pushing him into the corner to a chorus of boos. Rude Irish whips Chono into the opposite corner, but Chono reverses it, then slaps a headlock onto Rude to wear him down. Rude attempts to escape with a Northern Lights suplex, but Chono keeps the headlock applied. Chono eventually gets Rude into a sleeper, but Rude is able to power himself out, going back on offense by just slamming Chono's head into the mat. Rude picks up Chono and jabs him twice in the neck, then panders to the crowd. He then picks up Chono again and Irish whips him, but Chono is able to reverse into a sleeper again. This time, Rude is a- unable to escape and Chono brings Rude down to the mat with the sleeper locked in tight. Rude eventually escapes with a pin attempt and brings Chono to the mat with a headlock, really focusing on Chono's neck here. Chono is eventually able to escape out of this headlock predicament and follows it up with a leg lock on Rude to maintain pain on Rude's left knee. Chono continues the pain by applying a figure four lock on Rude, a callback to the man that vacated the NWA title to begin with. However, Rude is unable to, however, Rude is able to reverse the hold and keeps it locked for a minute before Chono reverses it back until Rude is, of course, able to squirm himself to the ropes and cause a rope break. The two men get to their feet, and Chono continues the attack on Rude's left knee. Rude lariats himself out of the corner, climbs to the top rope, looking for that diving knee drop, but Chono throws him off. Chono picks up Rude's left leg and applies the single leg Boston Crab, but eventually transitions into an armbar to really try and separate the shoulder from the socket. Rude is able to escape and hit a pile driver on Chono for a close two. Chono rolls to the outside, but Rude follows him, throwing Chono back inside to try and hit the diving knee drop, but Chono stands up, causing Rude to switch to a diving strike and then a lariat. To a chorus of boos, Rick Rude swivels his hips to the crowd, giving the fans what they paid for. He applies a camel clutch to Chono for quite a while, but Chono is eventually able to escape with an electric chair drop. Chono climbs to the top rope and attempts a diving shoulder block, but Rude swats Chono out of the way. Rude then climbs the top rope of his own and nails Chono with a diving dropkick to get the two and a half count. The crowd cheers. Rick Rude is furious. Rude picks up Chono and nails a beautiful DDT. He goes for another pin, but only gets a 2.9. 
Rude goes for a swinging netbreaker and a pin, and he's so confident he's got this now, he counts his own three. If only the ref did the same, Rude is stunned by Masahiro Chono here. Rick Rude climbs to the top rope once more, but Chono stops Rude and hits a superplex. Chono rolls over and crawls to Rick Rude for the pin. The crowd is cheering, but Chono only gets a 2.9 count. He climbs to the top rope again, but Rude stops Chono this time and gives a superplex of his own. The crowd is cheering, but again, only a 2.9 count. Rick Rude picks up Chono for a tombstone pile driver, but Chono just barely reverses it with the rest of his strength and nails his own pile driver. Chono takes the second to breathe, goes for the pin, but again, 2.9. Chono and Rude get to their feet, but collapse into each other on the ropes, similar to when like tired boxers just go to the ropes to both catch their breath. Chono Irish whips Rude, but Rude reverses it with a sleeper of his own. Rude brings Chono to his knee, but Chono is not out. He springs board off the ropes and lands on top of Rude and goes for a pin attempt, but doesn't get it. Rude, tired of all of this, just slams Chono's face into the mat. What more does he have to do here? After a couple strikes, Rude Irish whips Chono and goes for a back body drop, but Chono catches himself on the ropes. Chono goes for a kick, but Rude pushes Chono back. Chono goes for another, but Rude pushes back again. Chono goes for a third boot and gets it. Chono gets to his feet and hits a back body drop on Rude. He locks in the STF. Rude realizes how close to the ropes he is and grabs him. Rude gets up, hits another pile driver on Chono. Refusing to pin him, Rude drags Chono over to the corner climbs to the top rope, and nails the diving knee drop for the first time in this match. Medusa cheers for Rude on the apron, which actually distracts the referee. Rude goes for the pin and starts counting for himself. The referee is late, giving Chono enough time to kick out. The crowd is unglued. Rude picks up Chono and starts jabbing Chono in the neck again. He Irish whips Chono again, but Chono reverses it with a back body drop that puts Rude into a modified STF, a mood Chono innovated called the FTS. The crowd is off their feet, but Rude is able to crawl to the bottom rope, then roll out to the safety of the floor. Chono grabs Rude and flings him back into the ring. Chono tries to pin Rude twice, but both to no avail. He's getting frustrated now. He runs over to the down Rude, but Rude flings Chono out of the ring. Chono, on his second win, climbs the top rope and nails Rude with the diving shoulder block. One, two, three. Masahiro Chono wins the second G1 Climax. Conclusion Rick Rude's run through the 1992 G1 Climax was top-down amazing. Not only on the kayfabe level of being the first non-Japanese wrestler to reach the finals, but each match that had been talked about today told a great story. From the style clash and managerial usage against Hashimoto to the equal playing field bout with Masahiro Chono. 
Rick Rude truly established himself as a solid foreign heel in the New Japan landscape. This may sound like a strange comparison, but watching Rude gave me a lot of Jay White vibes. Great worker, great look, light heel shenanigans, especially in that 2019-2020 Jay White work. When Jay White as a character wants to go out there and prove himself, he will. And I got the same vibe from Rick Rude here in this tournament. Sadly, Rick Rude did not win the 1992 G1 Climax, and it truly astonishes me why he never got called back into other G1 Climaxes, especially being someone who made it all the way to the finals. I've come up with a couple of possible reasons why that might be. First, the nature of this tournament to begin with was to crown a new NWA World Heavyweight Champion, which was, kind of, a WCW belt. Seeing that Rick Rude was contracted with WCW at the time, to work New Japan, he would have to have a contract that allowed him to work outside dates independently, or conversely, be on a joint tour with WCW. Which, of course, based on that cage match match history, whether or not his contract allowed him to take outside bookings, Rick Rude did not do. Now, WCW and New Japan were in a joint partnership at the time, so if New Japan wanted Rude to compete in the G1 Climax, it could have been possible, but this of course is all pure speculation. Secondly, New Japan kept the idea of a quote-unquote foreign talent by working with promotions like War and Pro Wrestling Fujiwara Group. Adding Rude into the mix could have been interesting, but it's understandable for next year's G1 for New Japan to want to work with other local companies. Lastly, and definitely the most important point here, is that in 1994, Rick Rude faced Sting at New Japan's Wrestling Dotaku. There, Rude challenged Sting for the WCW International World Heavyweight Championship. It's at this event where Sting performed a dive to the outside on Rude, causing Rude to fall back and get injured when he landed on the corner of a raised platform. Despite finishing the match and winning the title, it was revealed that the injury suffered was too severe and Rick Rude was no longer able to wrestle. It's incredibly sad to see Rick Rude's career cut short due to an injury, especially since both WCW and potentially New Japan saw a lot in the 36-year-old. However, while wrestling for New Japan and especially in this star-making performance of the 1992 G1 Climax, Rick Rude made the best of his short amount of time. Rick Rude's G1 and only grade, A. The G1 and only wrestlers in the 1992 G1 Climax was overall sort of a mixed bag. You had highs and lows, but despite all of that, it was incredibly interesting to watch WCW wrestlers, even some that were about to become huge names, wrestle in New Japan Pro Wrestling. It may have been only a one-off performance for many of the wrestlers, but it was truly worth seeing these men work in front of the Japanese crowd and wrestle New Japan's house style. Definitely worth the watch. In two weeks, we will look at the 1993 G1 Climax, featuring talent from Japanese promotion War and pro wrestling Fujiwara Group. It's another single elimination tournament, but this time we are only looking at five of the 16 competitors. All that next week on G1 and Only.